Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we've unearthed the story of a woman known as the Ivory Bangle Lady. She was buried in York during the 4th century AD, and her grave goods, the objects found with her, give us an intriguing view of what Roman Britain looked like. To find out more, I'll be speaking to archaeologist Professor Hella Eckhart and fashion historian Talika Kirkland. But first, we're heading back to the tail end of the Roman Empire's occupation of Britain. We're in York in the 4th century AD, and it's a bustling metropolis. Since the 1st century and the Roman conquest of Britain, this has been a place of merchants and traders, soldiers and sailors. It's a city to be proud of, a centre of commerce and high status on a quite unremarkable island at the edge of the empire. It was so prosperous and well-known that two Roman emperors have died here, Septimius Severus in 211 AD and Constantinius Chlorus in 306 AD. The Emperor Hadrian is even rumoured to have stayed in York to break his journey north before building his Great Wall. York is the place to be and the place to be seen, and for one young Roman it's the place of her death, commemorated with the beautiful objects she valued in life. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know we've done a few episodes on the amazing advances science and bioarchaeology have made in the last few decades, especially in combating the bias that exists in the field, which often led to the misidentification of a person's race or gender. Like assuming a woman couldn't be buried with weapons, or men wouldn't be buried with jewellery, and the fact that people of diverse racial heritage existed in our shared past. Today, bioarchaeologists across the world are revealing hidden truths about our history that surprise and excite us. And that brings us to 1901 and the discovery of a grave of a young woman in York. She was buried in a stone sarcophagus with beautiful jewellery, including two bracelets, one made from jet found on the North Yorkshire coast and the other made from elephant ivory, after which she is named. Ivory was highly valued and traded across the Roman Empire, and in 2010, new research suggests that the Ivory Bangle Lady not only wore material culture that travelled from Africa, but that she herself could trace her ancestry from there too. This was widely regarded as shocking just a decade ago, as many people believed that while Roman Britain was inhabited by people of African heritage, 
They only held low-status positions in society, mostly assumed to be slaves. But the ivory bangle lady challenged those old assumptions. She was high-status, young and a Christian. So to find out more about this incredible woman, who better than a specialist in Roman archaeology and material culture? I'm joined now by Hella Eckhart, who is Professor at the University of Reading. Hella, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us more about your role as an archaeologist? Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm a Roman archaeologist. I mainly work on objects and what they tell us about people. So I'm quite interested in how the things that we wear or that we cook with or that we build our houses with, how all these things tell us something about who we are. So as a Roman archaeologist, where does this take you? Is it every corner of the Roman Empire or is it specific parts? Um, So I work mainly in Britain. I work on Roman Britain because it is a really interesting province. You know, we're obviously a really marginal province. We're at the edge of the empire. We're conquered relatively late. Um, And it's really fascinating to me to see how people adapt and adopt these Roman objects and how they engage with them or not. What do we mean by objects and material culture? You've mentioned clothes, you've mentioned sort of what people wear, but what do you find as an archaeologist? What's the thing you really love? So it could be it could be jewellery, it could be what people wear, um, but it could also be things. So one of my er- my earlier projects was on lighting equipment, lamps, and one of the things you could think about is so you know in the whole of Roman Britain there were maybe only say three thousand or so Roman lamps. Really. Yeah, and if if you go to a site like Cologne, um, you know, they would have that number easily. So clearly, there are relatively few people who use lighting equipment in Roman Britain. And that then tells you something about how they structure their day, uh, well, or night, rather, you know, um, what kind of activities they engage with, and what's important to them. And maybe lighting equipment just wasn't important, because it wasn't an important aspect of their life. So I'm quite interested in that kind of the way an object tells you about how people did things. So you can pick apart people's lives from the objects that they leave behind. Is there anything that has surprised you with the story that it can tell? Um, yeah, I think things like that. You know, if you if you look at an object category like that, then you suddenly think, oh, I might be seeing a pattern there. And the same could be true for, for other objects to do with how we dress or, you know, what people wore. So there might be brooch types that have a really regional distribution. They might tell you something about regional identity or they could tell you about gender. So certain objects like hairpins are associated with women and not with men, for example, things like that. Now, you've mentioned that we are, Britain is really the outreaches of the empire. We are a tiny little island sort of off that no one is particularly interested in. One person who seems to have travelled a terribly long way to get to us is known as the Ivory Bangle Lady. Can you tell me a little bit about her story? Who is she and where was she found? Yeah, so the Ivory Bangle Lady is an individual who was found in York in 1901. So she was excavated a long time or discovered a long time ago. She was buried in a stone sarcophagus and she had very rich grave goods. And the grave goods, so, you know, the 
the thing that I'm also quite interested in is origin and cultural identity. So where we are from and how that might be expressed in objects. And in archaeology, there were some objects where you might say, okay, these are exotic, these are unusual, and it might suggest that somebody is an immigrant in Britain. Um, and with her, what we can certainly say is her grave goods say that she's very high status. Um, she has bracelets, some of ivory, which are um, high status, and some of jet, which is a local material from Whitby, but also very high status. And then she has a glass vessel and various other things. Um, so sometimes we look at these girls and we say, okay, this is an exotic high status individual. And what we can do now in archaeology is we can compare that impression that we as artifact specialists have with some archaeological science. So we can look at two techniques, if you like, um, um, ancestry assessment, and then we could use isotope analysis. And we can try and figure out where somebody comes from in terms of their descent. So the ancestry assessment looks at that, or we could look at where they've grown up, what region of the world they may have grown up. So you've mentioned this stone sarcophagus that she's found in. Is this something that's unusual for the York Roman burials at the time, or is York a very prosperous place? York is an important place in the Roman period. So um, it's a colonia, so it's a major urban settlement. It's the site of a legionary fortress. You know, Roman emperors came there. So it's, it's, you know, it's a very important place. It's very cosmopolitan. And the Roman Empire is based on movement. So if you think about the movement of the army, the movement of traders, the movement of administrators, you know, we often have inscriptions that actually tell us that people moved huge distances and move repeatedly. So it's not that surprising, but in the past, we've always thought about inscriptions as the main source. So if, you know, if there's a stone inscription and it says, I came here from wherever north africa or something then you know that is what we what we focus on but now with these new techniques we can actually use the human remains themselves so even if they were excavated a hundred years ago we can go back and analyze them we can go in the store and find them and look at them using new techniques and that's really what the project at the university of reading was about We've talked about the ivory bangle lady being found in this incredible sarcophagus and the ivory bangle, of course, from where she gets her name. Studies of her remains have shown that she was born and brought up in the south of Britain. Why do we have this understanding or perhaps growing belief that she uh, has African heritage? So so that's where the, the two techniques come into it. So you can work out someone's heritage by looking. I mean, one thing you could do is DNA analysis. You could which we haven't done for this particular individual, but we have done for others. Um, or you could look at their ancestry, you look at the shape of their skull. And so there are subtle variations in the shape of our eye sockets, noses, the section between the nose and the lips, you know, that a human, a human bone specialist will look at those and say, okay, this person looks like they might be of mixed heritage. There might be some African you know, heritage in there. And that was the case with the ivory bangle lady. So her human bones suggest that a parent or a group of, you know, parent, grandparents, whatever, were from somewhere like North Africa, quite possibly. But her isotopes, so if you look at the chemical fingerprint that's preserved in your teeth, you can say something about the type of geology that you've grown up on and the type of climate you've grown in, grown up on. And 
it's not so <laughs> when people sort of think about this they they sometimes think it's like csi you know the american crime scene investigation and that you can be incredibly accurate and you can say oh this person is from you know i don't know gaul you know and from this particular part of gaul or, or from egypt and they can't be from anywhere else and and it doesn't work like that so you can broadly say they're local they look like they could be local or they could be from somewhere much warmer and more coastal for example or you know like egypt or they could be from somewhere much cooler and more continental like modern day germany so we can play that information off against the artifacts and against the ancestry assessment. So what we're, we have here is someone who was possibly born or at least spent a, a lot of their early life in the UK, in the South, and whose heritage is Roman Empire and could, and could be drawn from everywhere, but most likely is from Africa, and then ends up as a, as a very, in a very wealthy burial in York, is this a common Roman life? What does what does that tell you as an expert about her life and who she could have been and, and her status in society at that time? So in the past, maybe we've thought soldiers, administrators, you know, traders, they are all men. But actually, we have a few cases where we seem to have women moving. So that's quite interesting. And they could be moving with the army or not. We, we don't know. But until you start testing large numbers of skeletons, you won't find out because also only certain people set up stone inscriptions. So there, there would be a bias in the tone in the stone inscriptions towards soldiers, for example. So that's quite exciting, I think, to the possibility that we can see women um, doing, you know, doing these kind of things. Um, what we should always say is it, it is really difficult. So only by testing more and more skeletons do we get a better handle on what the range of isotope values should be for a region. Um, so with her, you know, there are other parts we, we said in the original paper that she could have grown up somewhere like southern Britain, but there are many areas of the empire where, that match that. But um, what it shows, I think, as well, is that we can't just assume that the people who move are the poorest in society. You know, today, I think when we talk about immigration, it's often um, men moving and people moving, you know, because they're fleeing perse persecution, but also for economic reasons. But then it's the elite that it's moving. It's, it's the people who have a choice to some extent or who are in important roles. And then, of course, slaves. So you, you also have forced migration in the Roman period. So um, we know that happened. So just to clarify, it's completely unlikely that she was a slave, given the extent of her grave goods and this incredible sarcophagus. So she was definitely someone who was a member of the elite. And I think that's more likely. I mean, you did get high status slaves. <laughs> so, it, you know, but um, I think given her grave goods, I would assume she was a member of the elite. We think she may have been a Christian. So there is an inscription, there's a little carved inscriptions um, that says hail sister may you live in peace which is a christian formula whether she was or not again you don't know but it's certainly interesting that that was in her grave um, and slaves in the roman period you know today we have this association with slavery with africa but in the roman period that is not the case so you have people who were from britain who were slaves so you have a famous um, tombstone 
of Regina and she um, was from near St Albans and she was a slave to a man who originally came from Syria and he then married her. So it's, you know, it, it's that, that association between Africans or people of African descent and slavery is a modern one. So this is very much someone who most likely lived in the highest part of Roman society in Britain and and lived a life we as yet don't know the full extent of. Can you tell me a little bit about what Roman Britain was like at this time and when exactly are we talking with the Ivory Bengal lady? She died in the sort of later 4th century AD. So this is a time where I guess... you know, if you sort of think about the Roman Empire, things are getting a bit more stressful. (laughs) Things are falling apart a little bit. Um, There's external pressure, there are economic pressures, um, but obviously there are still cities flourishing and and York is an important centre. She died quite young, so we can say a little bit about her as an individual. She died maybe the age between 18 and 25, something like that, quite young. Um, she didn't have any, there's no obvious cause of death. So we can't, we can't know what she died of, but that's quite common because many things that people die from don't leave a trace on the bones. So if you die in child, uh, you know, it's some kind of complication, um, with some kind of soft tissue disease or something like that, then, you know, we, we won't necessarily pick that up. So what was life like for a woman at this time in Roman Britain? So as part of the wider project, um, we looked at migration and mobility across Roman Britain. And that was really interesting because there's people from all over the world that come from the known world to come to Britain. So we also have people. So we have people that could be Mediterranean. We have examples of Syrians who are attested in Roman Britain. We have people from what looks like Germany isotopically or, or that, you know, eastern sort of eastern bits of Germany. Um, and that's quite fascinating so that there's all this movement. And then what interests me is how people interacted. So, you know, you could be, if, if you think about burials, you could have somebody who looks foreign archaeologically and isotopically is foreign. And then you could have somebody who looks quite local, for example, um, archaeologically, but is isotopically foreign. Do you see what I mean? We had a little girl in Winchester she looks archaeologically incredibly foreign. She has all these really odd grave goods and they are worn in an unusual way. But isotopically, she's local. So she was born and bred in Winchester. Now, what does that tell us? We can say perhaps her parents or one of her parents were from somewhere else, somewhere along the Danube maybe. And she is buried in that way because she's a sec, you know, she's a she's a sort of second generation immigrant where the parents are still sticking to some traditions, but she is already born in Britain and a lot of the grave goods are actually made in Britain. And I like that idea of thinking about how identities evolve. So it's not a case that Roman Britain was this backwater that no one really thought of it was also this diverse exciting community it's a cosmopolitan community even in this tiny little island that no one really cared about yeah well they did care they cared enough to um you know to send significant numbers of soldiers over to to keep it and and that's where some of this mobility probably comes from you know in order to um 
to maintain that province you know soldiers came over and that's they often quite diverse groups and we happen to know a little bit about them because there are better records for them than for ordinary people um so yeah i think there was mobility it's very difficult to quantify you know you can't it's, it's hard to say what proportion of people in somewhere like roman york were incomers um but again i would say if you if we do more isotope work that is something we can find out so on the matter of isotopes, is this something that you think is pushing forward your field and is, is very much revelatory to it? And it's going to change a lot of things that we have accepted as fact. Absolutely. I think so. Um, as will DNA analysis, because it allows us to say we can certainly identify people who are not local and we can look at people who perhaps previously weren't studied so if we just look at the inscriptions it's a self-fulfilling prophecy we're seeing the people who put up stone inscriptions and that's a limited body of people but if we look at the human remains if we look at all the skeletons in a museum store and analyze them which is expensive which why we have to sample but you know if we did that we can then say this is the population and this is what is going on because the Roman world is taught at key stage two, so in primary school, it's really important that these new scientific findings make their way into school teaching. So we have set up a website called Romans Revealed. Um, and Romans Revealed is, is a website where we've worked with Caroline Lawrence, who's a children's author. She's written a book, a book series called The Roman Mysteries. And she's written a series of short stories, but then there's also an opportunity for children to excavate a burial. So basically they click on, they click on the ivory bangle lady or on her grave goods or her tooth, and then they find out more about, about her. And I think that's really important. Um, and it's also important because migration is such a hotly contested topic today. It's very politicized. Um, so the BBC had a cartoon which featured a North African commander on Hadrian's Wall. And a right-wing blogger responded to that saying, well, that political correctness gone mad. This isn't, you know, this isn't a true reflection of what average life in Roman Britain was like. And then Mary Beard stepped in and said, well, no, actually it was, you know, that we have an inscription or multiple inscriptions for North African troops and we have people like the Ivory Banga lady, who indicate that, that this was happening. And then there was this huge, you know, the way Twitter can be so nasty and, and difficult, there was this, this Twitter storm about it. And Mary Beard received an awful lot of abuse. Um, and that is because people are invested, they, they're looking at the past as a way to settle modern disputes, I think. And that isn't, that isn't a helpful way of thinking about it. You know, but at the same time, if we don't understand what went on in the past, then we can't move on and we can't have that longer term perspective. It's also a way of removing bigotry about the past, isn't it? Because if you can show people with scientific and archaeological and historical evidence that their view of the past as one way or one race or one identity is not the case, it actually leads to a far more interesting conversation about the world that we live in today and where that came from. 
that is exactly the issue it's the complexity so you know i wouldn't say that the roman empire was a, a place of happy multiculturalism because at the end of the day you're looking at invading forces and you know colonial powers but what did then happen and by certainly by the fourth century is you know that there is all this movement and there is this interaction and as the science develops, as we as we carry out more of these studies, I think we'll find more of it. And it doesn't really matter whether how frequent they were. You know, it's very difficult to quantify. Um, it is an important aspect of the story, um, either way. So I was very grateful to Mary Mary Beard for for stepping into this Twitter war, but it did show how loaded the the subject is. Um, so I'm hoping very much that people, you know, school teachers and parents will look at look at a website like Romans Revealed and engage with somebody like the Ivory Bangle lady or go to York Museum. So now once once they reopen, obviously, um, that, you know, they're lovely. It's a lovely display. The backlash that often greets the scientific and historical fact that Britain's past has always been multicultural is a constant source of anger to me. The reaction to the cartoon Hella spoke of, and the revelation of the Ivory Bengal lady's diverse heritage in 2010, face the same insults and rejection. And we're in another moment of such cultural upheaval right now, focused on how Britain has memorialised and then forgotten the luxuries and wealth the Atlantic slave trade brought us from the 16th to the 19th centuries. And as Hella rightly points out, it's only through education, through making research like hers and others available to everyone, that we can start to challenge people's assumptions about the past and reclaim it for what it was. Messy, complicated, full of adventure and surprise. And we need to learn to stop holding on to the past as something concrete, but actually as a place that is ever-changing, as we learn to ask better and more interesting questions of the things that have been left to us. Before talking to Hella, I'd never have considered that women would move across the Roman Empire like men, or that Roman Britain was lit by only 3,000 lamps. And I love the fact that historians like her can draw important stories about regional identity from artefacts like tiny brooches and glass beads. To me, seeing the Ivory Bangle lady as someone who is mixed race, born here as the daughter of high-status immigrants to Britain, is really exciting. When images of Roman Britain come to my mind now, they won't just be soldiers, emperors and slaves, but traders, merchants and aristocratic elites from a myriad of backgrounds, each one calling this country home, each one leaving tiny pieces of themselves to us to tell us more about who they were. To explore how the Ivory Bangle Lady may have used her jewellery to express her own jewel heritage, I've got someone who specialises in just how important material culture and the movements of people is to understanding our human story. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm joined now by Talika Kirkland, and she's the Associate Lecturer in Cultural and Historical Studies and Creative Director of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora. Talika, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell me what a fashion historian does? So a fashion historian looks at um, clothing from the past and analyzes who might have worn that clothing, what that particular item of dress might have been for. And it's not just clothes that are fabric, let's say. It's also um, jewelry, accessories, headdresses, hats, shoes, you know, anything. Um, I had uh, one time looking at cod pieces, wow. 14th and 15th century. So it's, it's everything that you might have put on your body. So really a fashion historian looks at all different types of um, items of dress and analyzes them to find out more about the type of people who would have worn them. And I, I guess you're also someone who's quite obsessed with random details, things that connect across the centuries. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you might find um, an item like a shell on one item of clothing and then recognize it from somewhere else. Oh, 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 that's really interesting because that means that they must have had some kind of link with the other people and the other, you know, it just, it gets a bit nerdy. <laughs> But I think, you know, any any historian is actually secretly a gigantic nerd because that's what we love. We love collecting these little bits of information that make a big pattern elsewhere. But it is, it's that, isn't it? People think that if you're looking at a, a small thing like a shell or like a, a piece of jewellery, that that's a very small bit of study. But it's not. It's tying into trade. It's tying into economics. It's tying into how culture is shared. What fascinates you about that? Why is that something you wanted to look at? Especially when I'm looking at people of African heritage, there hasn't, there hasn't really been very much told about their, their history of who they are apart from enslavement. And you know, there's, there's so much more to the history of black people than enslavement. And it really made me want to ask questions about, well, who are these people and, and where were they from and what were they about? And they must have had systems of class. 
They must have had hierarchies. They must have had um, different professions and, and interests in trade and, and all of these things that you realize that, that what you've understood about a group of people that you come from is very, very small. So I mean, it really got me asking questions as to well, why is history more known and why, why aren't more people talking about this type of thing? Because we do have a very one-dimensional view of the history of black people, which is just purely through the lens of enslavement and abolition. And that does not tell anywhere close to the real or the true story. Can you tell me a little bit about the African diaspora and what that means? Because that's a much better term, isn't it, for our understanding of this period, of of all periods of history? Yeah, so the the African diaspora, it doesn't have a landmass. That's the best way to describe it, right? So, so there's no landmass, and it really is about literally the dispersal of people from the African continent. We've got traditional diasporas, which are um, the people who were taken from Africa and dispersed throughout the Americas for um, enslavement purposes and, and industrialization and things like that. So people in the Caribbean, South and Central America, North America, Um, even people in Mauritius and the Indian Oceans and and parts of India as well. So there's been a dispersal of people across the globe um, who were taken from the African continent for the purposes of um, economic development and, and trade and all of that. Then we have people who have moved for their own autonomic purposes. It might be uh, work, it might be education, things like that, right? And then the, the last level, which is much more a much more modern level, is people who are moving across the diaspora, black people who are moving back across the diaspora because they just want to live somewhere different. And so when I'm speaking about the diaspora for my work, I'm focusing, because of the history and culture, I'm really focusing on the traditional diasporas of people who, this kind of forced migration of people across the world from the African continent. Because we have a real problem, don't we, in in our understanding of the past, in that we think we tend to think of black people as only moving through forced migration. We don't we don't acknowledge that throughout history, black people have moved of their own accord and of their own desires. Absolutely. I mean, the ivory bangle lady is a perfect example. Before forced migration, there were people from the African continent moving all over the world, right? Through trade, through exploration, through actually, I'm just gonna take a boat and see what's over there. (laughs) Because because why wouldn't you? You know, if you have the technology to sail and travel, why wouldn't you travel? The the curiosity of humans has, has always made us want to go and look for other things and search for other things and find other people and right that's that's just a natural human curiosity so your work with the costume institute what can that tell us about global black identities so i think the first thing it tells us about global black identities is that they're much more multifaceted than what we've come to understand our work is really about linking the different facets of history of black people together the point of starting the Costume Institute was that I was frustrated when I'm reading books on dress history and I'm reading journals or whatever it is about analytical, critical ideas about 
dress and fashion. I'm never seeing anything based on anything from the African continent or anything to do with black people. And it's almost as if black people didn't have any kind of material culture. And I know that's not true. And, and I, find, I found that very fr frustrating. So the whole point of the Costume Institute was to be able to, first of all, alleviate my own frustration. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I'm frustrated, then I imagine there are other people who are similarly frustrated. Is, is this wonderful intermingling and intertwining of cultures that you take with you wherever you go from and then you absorb parts of the culture of this new place that you're in? And if we go to the Ivory Bangle Lady, one of the reasons why we call her this is because of her two bracelets, one being of African elephant ivory and the other being made of Yorkshire jet. What do you think this kind of co-mingling of, of jewellery and of culture can tell us about her? Well, it's really interesting. What first struck me was the idea of her possibly have been of dual heritage herself. We, we think of it, I think we think of mixing of, of races and mixing of cultures very differently now. The, the ivory bangle lady, she me as, as kind of wearing, almost wearing her culture on her arm. And that then identified with her, what I'm presuming or what I'm gleaning is her dual heritage. And then everything that was kind of around her and the jewellery that she's wearing does suggest that the fact that whichever parent was the one who travelled suggests that their ability to be able to travel meant that they had some kind of resource, some kind of money, which explains why might have been a high status person and has all these types of things in her um, burial site. You've mentioned um, the fact that the Ivory Bengal lady could be mixed race, and this is generally what we, we believe about here, is that she is someone of dual heritage. Is it common for people to see, to, to wear their dual heritage literally on their bodies, to be proud of it, to show it off throughout history? Is this something that you see a lot at the Costume Institute? No. <laughs> really? In, in a word, no, it isn't. I haven't, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen it very often. I, I really, I honestly haven't. It tends to really be about where they're based as well, let's put it that way. In saying that, though, I haven't come across much evidence of dual heritage people in this same kind of way. I might want to mention someone like um, Alexander Dumas, who um, was of dual heritage, but very much... Um, taking on the, the culture where he was based. We're about to start another project and, and it's based on this image. He was a noble person in Italy. And so the way he's dressed, the pictures of him being dressed, I wish I could remember his name. <laughs> the pictures of, of, you see of him, he's clearly dual heritage. Everything around him and the way he's dressed is very Italian, right? And so, Again, you, you, when you understand that part of your heritage is more affluent, then I suppose the images and artifacts and things that you will find that identify you are going to be from that particular heritage. Ivory, Ivory Bangle Lady, in that sense, is very unique to me. I haven't come across many like her, and I certainly haven't come across many that would identify themselves with the, the bangle like that, and I, I find that really, really interesting. Do you think that's changing today? Are we more understanding and more welcoming of mixed race heritage? And are, do people who are mixed race, do you think that they feel 
that they are more comfortable with expressing both sides of their heritage now? Or is there still something that carries a lot of bias and a lot of, of difficulties? I know from having spoken to many people of dual heritage and the students that I work with who are of dual heritage, they still have issues with themselves of where they feel they belong. There does need to be made more of the understanding that actually you're not one or the other, you're both. And it's not that you have to pick a side. That whole idea of having to pick a side seems really crude. You have the the luxury, the privilege of having both heritage. That's the whole point of being dual heritage. You have both heritages and how rich are you because of that? I love Talika's final point there on dual or diverse heritage not being about forcing someone to pick a side, but about celebrating the many cultures that make you who you are. And the nerdiness that drives all historians to follow tiny threads and unravel clues to the identities of the people who have lived before us. She's so right to showcase that throughout history, the self-determination of peoples in the African diaspora has led to trade, fashion and culture being exchanged across continents. Acknowledging this only enriches our history, and we can see now that the African diaspora has been part of our heritage and culture here in Britain from the ancient world to today. To find out more about Talika's work, you can visit kayad.org.uk, that's C-I-A-D, or search for Kayad UK on social media for more from the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora. And although the Yorkshire Museum, where you can see the skeleton of the ivory bangle lady and her grave goods on display in York, is currently closed at the time of this episode's release, head to yorkshiremuseum.org.uk to see images of the artefacts and learn more about her life. That's it for today's episode, but please share your thoughts using hashtag notwhatyouthought or tag at HistoryUK or at FanRiddell on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And if your favourite podcast app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. We've had some excellent comments so far and I love reading them. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Professor Hella Eckhart and Talika Kirkland. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, with research by Mary Unze, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.